Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. I'm very happy to be hosting Danielle Watson today. Hi there, Danielle. Hello. Very cool to have you here with us. Danielle's a uh, board-certified behavior analyst uh, with a Master of Science degree specializing in behavior analysis from St. Joseph's University. And she's currently working on her PhD in behavior analysis at the Chicago School. Danielle has worked in the field of behavior analysis with children for over a decade, supporting young children, teens, and even some young adults with diverse abilities. In her spare time, when she's not supporting clients, doing schoolwork, or immersing herself in the behavior analysis culture, including being a co-host on the Controversial Exchange podcast. She loves to spend time with her niece and nephews, read a good book, and go for walks on the local trails. So, Danielle, thanks again for being here. Exciting to have uh, another interesting uh, researcher and personality that's local from BC here on, on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Tell me the story about kind of how you got into ABA, being out there in small town, Vancouver Island, and, uh, and kind of how you got to where you are now. Yeah, so my cousin was diagnosed with autism when he was about three, and I was not too, too much older. I mean, older enough, but he's been in my life for such a long time, and so I've been exposed to behavior intervention and consultants and that since he was diagnosed because we visited my aunt all the time. And uh, I looked after him and babysat him and spent so much time with him and there was one day where she just kind of approached me and she said, you have a natural knack for this. You are going to be trained on my team. Mm. You're going to meet my consultants. And I want you to work with your cousin. And so I was just like, oh, okay. I think I was 14 or 15 at the time. Like I was oh, quite wow. young. Yeah. And, um, but that's how I got kind of into it. And I did train with his behavior interventionist and his consultants. And I kind of learned about the field that way. And the consultant sort of just took me under their wing. And as I graduated high school, they were like, okay, these are kind of the degrees that you should get. And this is the experience you should have. And look, we have these other clients. And, and I just started, it was just like a snowball. Yeah. And I just knew that this was something I wanted to do. I'd always been interested in psychology. Like I'd always said, if I was going to do something as a career that wasn't this, I'd be a counselor or a psychologist or, you know, doing something very similar. Yeah. And so then, you know, I did my bachelor's degree and then kept working and jumped into a master's degree and kept working. And then now here we are <laughs> doing a doctorate and still working. It sounds like, you know, your your aunt just kind of set your career path and basically, you know, it shaped you all the way to where you are today. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> like I never really had to. I remember that in high school and even into the undergrad program where people were always like, I just don't know what I'm going to do or which direction I want to go. And I was, I always just had this clear love and passion for it. Like I never thought, oh, I'd rather do something else. And I never felt pressured into it. It wasn't like that. It just rolled out in front of me so perfectly every step of the way. And so, and so from like 14 to 19, were you just working with your cousin? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> A little bit. I think 17, 18, 19 I had started because I actually graduated high school at 17. Okay. Um, so I did start working with a couple other clients then. And it's kind of fun because you're young enough that some of the clients who aren't too, too young, they're kind of in those preteens, they look at you like one of them. Mm -hmm. So they seem to be more open with you about some things than they might be with a more mature adult doing intervention. And I still find that today because I still look 12. 
that <laughs> I tend to be able to develop really good relationships with the teen population. But yeah, I just, yeah, it's been a very fun experience. And I actually, it's interesting because when I was coached, in, not coached, but guided mm -hmm. through this whole path, I didn't really realize that ABA was a science and not a treatment. And I think that's kind of common with people who do get into the field this way. They're like, okay, mm -hmm. this is a thing for autism. This is a yep. treatment for autism. And then you get into your master's and you're like, oh, no, it's so much more than mm -hmm. that. And you start diving into the Facebook culture or the social media culture. And you're like, oh my gosh, look at all these things we could do. And you start going to conferences and you're like, ah, like my eyes have been opened. And that's where the doctorate program sort of came in. I was like, well, what more could I do with this if I ever wanted to branch outside of autism and the intellectual disability realm, like, can I help other people or can I find other types of work or other consulting gigs? And because as much as I love consulting, I'm still super young. Is it really something that I feasibly will want to do for the next 40 years? Mm -hmm. I don't know. But if I have some other things in my back pocket that are related and use the same skill set, I mean, that would be really cool. So that was sort of where applying to the doctorate program came in. I was hoping to kind of broaden my range of understanding where ABA and EAB and all those fun things could play a role. Right. Gotcha. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to come back to that. That's uh, I, I want to unpack that some more. Cause I think that's something that's um, I think that's something we're seeing a whole lot more of in the field now, which is super mm -hmm. awesome. The sort of expansion beyond autism. I know it's always been there, but I want to just kind of go back a bit again to your, your, your youth because I think I think you touched on a really great point. I had um, I don't know what the order of the podcast episodes <laughs> will be. This may decide right here this this question. But I had Thea uh, uh, Brain on a couple of weeks back, and she's really involved in. She's doing her PhD right now at UBC, and her her research is around peer mediated learning. Yes, yep. And it, that really sounds a lot like kind of what you were doing. When you were, you know, a 15-year-old, 16-year-old, you know, BI, basically, you know, working with these kids. And you can just sort of see the the difference when they can see the difference when you're a peer versus, you know, a professional. And yet it seems like, at least locally, it seems like our field is sort of designed so that BIs are recruited when they're 19. And it's an out of high school sort of thing. Maybe you're in university, you see something on a job board. That's sort of where the advertisements come. Your story is unique to me. I, I, I don't, I don't hear too many stories of BCBAs and or be, uh, you know taking on a BI at 14 and 15 and uh, and doing that work. And I get the family connection, but it just seems like this this we're 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 losing out on a whole group of potential behavior analysts by not sort of having programs for that, that sort of allow for kids that were your age to kind of get into the field. Yeah. And I think like there's some restrictions now that there might not have been then, or mm. maybe there were then, and I just <laughs> wasn't really privy to them. Sure. Um, you know, I think if you're working with under sixes, I'm pretty sure it specifically states you to access the funding, you have to be over 19. Mm. But I don't think I mean, I don't think the autism funding unit's that thorough about checking these things, mm -hmm. to be honest. <laughs> um, <laughs> but also there's respite funding if if a family gets respite funding. Yeah. I mean, that's non-taxable income that a family could use for any sort of respite. And if your respite caregiver is trained as a behavior interventionist, there's really nothing wrong with that. And like you said, this is a skill set that can be used in such broad areas. I mean, yes a mature student who's say 15 16 
could use this specifically to work as a BI, but I think the skills that they learn around how reinforcement works Mm -hmm. and stimulus control and how to remain neutral in the face of challenging behaviors, whether that be really severe challenging behaviors like aggression and SIB or even bullying at school, Mm -hmm. how to remain neutral to those things and not provide the reinforcement through the function and Mm -hmm. identifying the function. Like those are amazing skills that can help you persevere and become more resilient, I think, in a lot of aspects of your life. Yeah. yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah, though, that that sort of skill set is really good, and that sort of leads me to think about sort of we have some, you know, amazing kind of STEM programs out there now, and I mean, I think we even have now a professor now at UBC now who does a lot of this sort of STEM research in autism. But when we look at sort of science and technology, it's all you know biology, chemistry, physics, math. I see a potential for you know behavior analysis being in there, you know, as as you know a legitimate sort of you know, high school course that you take. Yeah, I think it could be a really, I mean, I don't even know if you'd have to label it as behavior analysis. No. Because I think, I mean, I think what they call one of the courses now is like personal planning or something like that. Yep. I mean, why couldn't that be teaching students about reinforcement and functions, but then tying it into how to self-manage, mm-hmm. self-reinforce, mm-hmm. Um, utilize coping strategies, teach yourself skills, like whether those be vocational or life skills or right, like tie it into all the same stuff that they're teaching now, like budgeting and, and um, applications for school, but have that underlying foundation of reinforcement, self-management, executive functioning, learning principles, all, all of that. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think about sort of how the school system in ABA have, have, you know, we've seen a lot more, you know, happening there in terms of there's there's a lot of teachers now that are bcbas and and the like i'm surprised this hasn't happened already um and is i wonder if this is just sort of a administrative barrier because of curriculum design or yeah it's not that surprising when you read books like the eden conspiracy and and project follow through and and really research how teachers are trained it's it's actually not as surprising as you might think Mm. I hope that as we disseminate more and more and as some of the private schools demonstrate how effective some of our strategies can be, that gradually you'll see more behavior analysis and learning principles in the classroom. Right. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I know I, my when I was doing my, my master's course or program, uh, one of the professors said to me, you know, Ben, general education is literally right there down the hallway. <laughs> And we're in special education over here and we don't talk ever. Uh, they don't want anything to do with us. Uh, we want lots to do with them, but they don't want anything to do with us. You know, I always thought that was really interesting that there's this whole, that there's a whole resource of sort of special education and, you know, often in kind of ABA programs uh, available to teachers that, uh, and they don't even want to touch it. They just, they might have one course and that's it. Yeah. Teachers are trained by other teachers. Yeah. They're not trained by professionals in the areas of the subjects that they teach. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's not it's not the teacher's fault that they don't have these skills. It's it's a systemic problem. And there's often arguments about, you know, how do we change the education system? Do we do it bottom up or do we mm-hmm. do it top down? And um, the new book that Kim wrote called Blind Spots really mm. goes into her opinion on how to how to start tackling these things. And I can't remember if she took a bottom up or a top down position, but you know, there's some great strategies in there about how we could start working towards that. And uh. and that again, it's not teachers' fault. 
they don't even know that these things are out there right. a lot of the time, right? <laughs> yeah, they don't know what they're missing, right? Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Hmm, cool. All right, we'll definitely uh, share some of those resources. Yeah, I'm interested to check out that book too. So I've, I've heard it. It's a, it's a great book. Some really yeah. good things on it. Okay, well, right on. So there's definitely um, some thoughts around there. So, so you've been in the field. So you're you've been in the field for quite a while. I, eventually, you know, sort of you'll you'll be you know. I don't want to look too far in the future, but when folks are talking about how long they've been in the field, you'll always have a, an edge on people because you're probably one of the youngest people to kind oh, of... Oh, man. People <laughs> look at me and they're like, you've been doing this for how long? You look yeah. and, not old enough. And you're only, and you're, and you're only 17? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, I was doing an observation at a school recently yeah. at one of the elementary schools. It's K-7. to And one of the professional, or not para, the paraprofessionals there, one of the EAs yeah. asked me what grade I was in or whose class I was in. That's awesome. And I was like, I do not look like I'm in seventh grade, do I? Like, <laughs> I'm in my professional clothes. That is, I'm clearly not playing with the other kids. That is amazing. Oh, oh my gosh. That's yeah. not good. No, but no. then she jumped. She was like, are you a student here? To Are you a parent of a student here? And I was like, well, how, how do you make that yeah. jump? <laughs> We got We got to work on your perception a bit. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You need. Some, you got. You got. You got some goals to work some on. Some stimulus yeah, discrimination yeah. training. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. It was pretty funny though. Yeah, for sure. All right. So you, you've uh, you then you you go to St. Joseph. Is that, is that is that in the states? I guess so. eh? Yeah. So I did their online program there in um, Philadelphia. Okay. And it was a master's in criminal justice, specializing in behavior analysis. Oh, interesting. And so what what, uh, what made you choose criminal justice? Um, you know what? I had uh, some colleagues suggest the program, and actually my soon-to-be supervisor at the time had done her master's there and had kind of expressed that she really enjoyed the program and, and found it really valuable. And, and it was a newer program at the time, so it was not that this is a good reason to get into a program, but the, it was a little bit easier to get admitted into. Mm. Um, no, fair enough. Yeah. which again, at the time, my goals weren't to become a researcher or to expand beyond the realm of supporting people. It was, I want to become a BCBA mm -hmm. and I want to get there as soon as possible. Sure. So I am going to take this program and, um, you know, sure enough, I was accepted and it was, it was very interesting because you had criminal justice classes. Mm -hmm. And you had behavior analysis classes. And it's kind of like what you said between the gen ed and the special ed. There was no cross-communication. Huh. So you kind of had to take your own initiative if you wanted to tie the two together in your assignments. And then because it was a U.S. school, uh, some of the criminal justice aspects weren't necessarily as applicable in Canada. Like yeah. There was a lot of focus on the death penalty. Sure which we don't have. Yeah. So, but it was really interesting in learning about restorative justice and learning about being objective and reporting. Um, Cause they did, I actually took like a, a class on police reporting. Cool. And um, so that was a really good skill set to bring. And just learning how to access different sciences, different journals to kind of get that interdisciplinary collaboration was really yeah, yeah, cool. So yeah. there was a lot of really good, bonuses to doing it but it was i was hoping it would open up some doors here in canada but looking back it makes sense that it maybe wouldn't because we don't have the same funding here for criminal justice stuff and i don't know how far a criminal justice masters in the u.s would go in canada because they're different systems but it is the program that the fbi quantico recruits from <laughs> really that's awesome 
Yeah. So if had I wanted to uh, immigrate to the U.S. and pass a physical exam, I could have been a criminal profiler, oh my gosh. which could have been fun. That could have been really cool, for sure. Could have been on Criminal Minds, basically. 100%. And so why do they have a program that has a specialization in ABA, but they don't connect at all? Like, what, what, do you, Any idea why that program was created? I Bizarre. don't, I haven't, re- I never really dove into it so much. No. I think it, you know, I think the other thing about St. Joseph's is they have um, a pretty well-known autism treatment center. I think mm. it's the Kinney Center. It might, I might be wrong, but they do have like a practicum base. Oh, so okay. if you're doing the program in person, it is a very autism center program. And I don't think you have to take the criminal justice track. That was just an option for people and probably mostly for people interested in getting into something like criminal profiling. Yeah. No, that makes more sense. Yeah. So do you find that you've used anything from that, like in in, in your, in your roles now, in your work now of the criminal justice Um, stuff? Not so much. I know my supervisor, she retained a lot of the information that she learned from those classes, but she also, prior to changing her career path, she had been interested in criminal justice Mm -hmm. and was working towards that field. And so she had a lot more background in it than I did and has been able to carry that forward and and use that in her practice and daily life a lot more. Mm -hmm. I was still when I like I was still so young. (laughs) Yeah, hundred percent. And didn't know what I didn't know. Um if I went back and did it now, I think I'd probably bring more of it with me. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, because I could see it applying. I mean there's a lot of um certainly a lot of conversation right now around social justice. Um, and mm-hmm. ABA, and I can see some of that stuff applying. And, and uh, I know even just even just locally, I mean, I've got colleagues that are working at like in the kind of forensic kind of area, the mm-hmm. forensic hospital and that sort of thing. So I could definitely see. I think like the restorative justice piece has been a part that I've always carried forward mm-hmm. and thinking about rehabilitation, mm-hmm. especially of, of juvenile delinquents and thinking about the mm-hmm. school to prison pipeline. Mm-hmm. And the ways that we could prevent these things if we were just teaching sort of like you were talking about was having a program for it. Like if we were just able to teach some of these skills, I think we would be able to do a lot of rehabilitation for people who are just starting their criminal path. Yeah. If that makes sense, you can kind of catch them and stop them there and redirect them back to a different path. But again, the funding plays a huge role in whether or not there are jobs available or work available in those yeah. areas. So I started my career working with young offenders and I was working in a, in a group home uh, on the East coast uh, run by the John Howard society uh, that had, that was a you know, full on residential program for super young kids that were just kind of entering mm-hmm. the system. And we had, of course I, uh, this was long before uh, ABA was in, in my lingo, um, but I could definitely have seen a lot of value to a lot of the, that stuff. I in mean, that if program. you had a BCBA there oh that God, had that, that experience, it would be amazing. It would be, and the amount of money that could be saved, because again, we're teaching a lot of the same skills that we're teaching with children with, you know, disabilities or, or autism or even just general skill deficits that maybe don't have a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are the same skills that we would teach these guys. Like, you know, sometimes they have a social skills deficit and so they can't um, communicate well with adults or peers. And then that guides them to pick the wrong peers, which then leads to further challenges. Or maybe they don't have the vocational skills. And, you know, so then when they reach 19 and there's no more support, they're left out on the streets yep. and they're unable to get a job. And like even just coping skills, because if you don't have the coping skills, then you might be more likely to turn to 
drugs and alcohol is your you know, way of self-medicating. And if you just had even just those three core sets of skills taught to you more explicitly, because we know that not every kid learns the same way, mm-hmm. the amount of, I think, rehabilitation and prevention that could be done is amazing. Absolutely. And is there, is there anyone doing that kind of work? Possibly. <laughs> I, I would I would be surprised if there wasn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose it is, it, it, for f- folks that are just kind of specializing in those kind of behavior disorder sort of folks and yeah they might have i mean pat fryman there you go yeah of course yeah he's a probably great example right? yeah um father flanagan's school yeah. and and boys town yeah. that's exactly what boys town does um so you know there's definitely people doing it yeah. i had i never really took the initiative to look so much in canada mm-hmm. to see who was doing it because again my path just rolled out in front of me and i just kept following no actually it. absolutely well let's uh let's 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 uh Use that segue and, and keep following your path. So, into into uh, a, a doctorate. Uh, but actually, let's maybe we'll talk a little bit more about kind of the work you were doing in your master's. So, uh, um, I guess more so the work you were kind of doing. So the 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 in terms of safety skills and whatnot. Was that in your master's or was that in your in your doctorate? It was in my doctorate. So the master's program was a non thesis track. Oh, that's right. It was primarily practicum based. Which again, at the time, just looking to become a BCBA, just looking yep. to get through, that was the right path. Until as I worked through it, I went, holy moly, there's so much more to be done yep. here. And so then that's where I applied for the PhD. Right. And uh, if you hadn't done a thesis in your master's, then part of the prerequisite for doing the PhD program is you do your thesis first. Mm before you can do your dissertation in your in your doctorate program. Gotcha. And so that's where the safety skills thesis came into play. So essentially you got ex- accepted into the program um, but do a thesis first before we start the doctorate. Well, they have or? two tracks. Yeah. So if you are accepted and you haven't done a thesis then you take a different track mm. of coursework and and um, time in the program than someone who has already done one. If you're planning on collecting continuing education units for this episode, you'll need to know the three secret words. The first secret word is safety. And I think that's that's cool because that sort of dispels the myth, I think, for a lot of folks, especially uh, we've got a lot of, I imagine initially most of our listeners will, are going to be in British Columbia. Um, and we have a lot of folks here that are attending UBC. Or Western. Or Western, for sure. And with UBC, it's, uh, it, you know, they have a, a non-thesis and a thesis track sort of uh, program. But there's a sort of a myth, I guess, well, it's clearly a myth, that if you do the non-thesis track, you're done. You can't move on in your career anymore in terms of, in terms of education. You cannot get a doctorate unless you do like a, a thesis first. So Yeah, definitely a myth. And, and there were, I had colleagues who had done research projects that weren't necessarily a part of their master's thesis, but because they worked in a research-based clinic, Mm. they had presented posters or um, published studies with supervisors in the clinics. And they were able to use that as their alternative to their thesis. That was enough. So, yeah, great. So, you, any of you uh, MED, uh, UBC grads who are thinking, you know, I'd like to keep going, you can. 
You totally yeah. can. It's very expensive, but you can. <laughs> yes, yes. So, I mean, you're you're at the Chicago School for Professional Psychology, which is, you know, uh, one of the preeminent schools for sure. And obviously in Chicago, um, so at American University, so obviously there's the, the higher tuitions and whatnot, but the, there is the benefit, particularly in, in these crazy uh, pandemic times, um, that you can do this entire program online. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, I... Um we did pre-COVID, we had a residency every year in Chicago mm-hmm. that we would go to for three or four days, um, very conference style, very fun. This year, I just finished mine and it was virtual and it was, you know, bittersweet because mm-hmm. it was our last one. And, you know, it's sad not to think that we'll get to see everybody again unless we all do um, like a graduation ceremony. Mm-hmm. But but they did switch it to online. So, yes, um, during the times of COVID, everything can be done online. Post-COVID, pre-COVID, there are those in-person residencies that you are required to go to. Right on, right on. So your your thesis, I guess, uh, in, uh, in the Chicago School was on um, adult safety skills. So what what was what was that work, and, and what did that look like? Yeah. So I mean, when you when it is a very fast process, <laughs> a three-year program sounds like a long time. Mm-hmm. It is not a long time. Three years is not actually three years but they try very hard to help you stay on track for three years. Mm. And so when you start the thesis process, you actually pretty much like you don't realize you have to pick a topic like within a week. Wow. And, you know, because they know you're in a doctorate program, they know you're going to do your dissertation. There's some pressure to just kind of pick something relatively easy, Mm -hmm. but still valuable, like still you're going to get some skills and learn, but that you can get done in a timely manner and move on to your dissertation. So you got to pick that fast. And and you're probably picking something that just around the same on. time. You're picking something like, yeah, it doesn't have to be unique like a dissertation. It doesn't have to contribute something new. It can be a replication. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be an extension. It could be something in in the area that you work like they don't want you reaching too far because they don't want you to fall behind but you have this pressure you're like well i'm paying a lot of money for this program and i'd really like to do something valuable Mm -hmm. so (laughs) there's kind of two sides of that story and um just around the same time there had been some things happening with my clients related to safety skills where Mm. one of my clients basically could have been abducted very easily and it was it was very scary And um, luckily turned out totally fine. And the person, the stranger in the case was a super nice person and was just genuinely being helpful. Or another time where there was the potential for a sexual abuse situation with one of my clients. And it was it it was just really scary. And it got me thinking about um, the do better movement that Megan Miller had started. Mm. And she had sort of started with the force compliance training and doing better around that. Mm and the clients that had had this happen were were old enough that their early intervention had been more traditional and had kind of led to some of this forced compliance. And so when someone says get in the car or do something sexual or whatnot, there's a high likelihood that they're going to do it without really questioning what's about to happen. Absolutely. Luckily, all the situations were prevented and nothing bad happened to anybody. And it was great. But that I was like, okay, this is really socially significant. And then you look into the research. It's been done before. Raymond Miltenberger and Trevor Maxfield and so many others have done quite a bit of research on this. So I had something to kind of extend and replicate on. 
And so that's what I went with. I, I chose to do it and I extended it into the young adult population because again, those are the kind of, that age group is the age group that had a more traditional force compliance type early intervention. And so they're the ones that still need those skills now on how to self-advocate. And then most of the research has been done in abduction prevention. But if you actually look at the statistics on how likely abduction is, it's, it's actually very, very low. Very low. Uh, the, the majority of abductions that happen in Canada and the U.S. are actually by family members. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot harder of a skill to teach. You know, if a stranger approaches you and tries to bribe you into their vehicle or something like that, that's easy. You teach no, run away, report. But when your extended family member that you know shows up and says, hey, get in the car, or even an immediate family member, how do you teach the discrimination between when to get in the car and when to not get in the car and when to go with a parent or not to go with a parent? Like, that's much more challenging to teach those abduction prevention skills. Totally. But but what I realized was in a sexual abuse situation or even a physical abuse situation where someone might be bullying you or threatening to hurt you, the same three steps apply as in an abduction situation. You should say no or do some sort of denial, move away as quickly as possible, and report it. Mm-hmm. And so I extended it to the adult population and I extended it to sexual abuse, physical abuse, and abduction prevention. So that was what I did with my thesis. Yeah, that's so triggers a lot of memories for me. I mean, uh, the whole force compliance thing. I just before I got into sort of ABA, I was was working in a group home with uh, a bunch of twenty something, you know, guys with autism, non vocal, all kind of falling into that realm. Had one of the, I know one of them was was connected to sort of the the original sort of Auten case that. yeah, which for those that don't know, that's sort of the, the legal case that led us to getting autism funding in the province. And so these these guys were some of the, like you said, some of the earliest early intervention clients. And wow, uh, you know, I, I uh, lots of prop dependency, of course, but the force compliance thing was clear. Uh, all, any of these kids, or adult guys, sorry, would uh, would have, so just thinking of sort of routine, bathing routines or whatnot, take their clothes off on a dime. You say clothes off, they do it immediately. You say, basically you say do anything and and they do it immediately. It's sort of that, yeah, force compliance. That's a term I haven't actually. Which in a safe environment, you know, led them to learn the skills they needed, right? I mean, I can't imagine where some of my clients would be had they not had their early intervention, right? Mm -hmm. So not to say that the early intervention was a terrible thing, you know, now we know, because we're farther ahead, that we need to also take into account how to teach self-advocacy mm-hmm. and how to properly teach when, you know, a dangerous situation versus a safe situation and mm-hmm. a little more around those things. Just like we now know that we need to take into consideration maintenance and generalization and a lot of things that we just didn't know at that time. Mm-hmm. Journalization is huge. I mean, uh, I mean, I know that my staff were excellent and I had no sort of concerns in that area, you know. Easily any But sometimes it's peers. Yep. Because and and that was one of the situations too where a peer just knew something felt good and asked for something to happen and it wasn't there was no malicious intent behind yep. it. It it was just a request and then the other person is like, Oh, it's a request, I'm going to comply. Yep. And neither really understand yep. that what's happening isn't necessarily okay. No, exactly. And and then with generalization, of course, if it's one thing for, you know, the caregiver to ask. 
but they don't know the difference between caregiver and stranger. So, uh, so anyone can sort of ask. And, and if the peers both understood consent and both understood exactly what they were asking, and it, again, totally different situation. Mm-hmm. So there's just a lot more learning that needs to happen in these areas and a lot of prerequisites that we don't think about that need to be yeah, taught. Absolutely. So so yeah. what did your your study look like? Um so it was very similar to Raymond Miltenberger's studies where you kind of have a baseline where you you test whether or not a client is going to engage in any of the appropriate prevention skills when put in a situation, mm. a potentially dangerous situation. So you find volunteer confederates, mm. which were my friends and my friends probably hated me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but my friends were asked to approach a certain individual in the community and make a abduction statement, a sexual abuse statement, or a physical abuse mm-hmm. statement to this individual. And then I would be standing by video and audio recording these things to see how they responded and then could collect data later. And after you do your baseline, then you start your intervention, which is behavioral skills training. So you do your instruction component and explaining the difference between community helpers and strangers and family and friends, and then explaining the difference between a safe and a dangerous situation and explaining the appropriate response to a dangerous situation and who are the people you should report to? How do you get away? Where do you get away to? Because there's lots of different ways to get away. Like, what if you run away, but you don't have anywhere to go? Mm-hmm. Do you, Where's a safe place to go? What if the person keeps chasing you? Like, <laughs> There's actually quite a few scenarios there. So talking about that. And then also just teaching the basic skill of how to say mm-hmm. no. And, you know, some of my clients were nonverbal. So how do you nonverbally say no? Non-vocal verbal. And, um, so just the instructional component for that and then the video models and then role-playing with myself and a parent or caregiver or a therapist, somebody trusted. And then you do in-situ training in the community, which is basically role-playing with a confederate, mm-hmm. but it isn't primed. So the participant doesn't necessarily know that they're about to role-play. Right. So it's kind of like a probe. And the Confederate comes in and presents the statement. And then if the client responds appropriately, we still go in with reinforcement. But if they respond inappropriately, then we repractice and we provide feedback. And then we do that until they reach mastery across all the situations. So 100% correct responding across all the situations and different Confederates. And then, um, and then we probed for maintenance using the same thing without the NC2 feedback um, about a month later. Wow. So, so, yeah. so how many trials would these folks have gone through then? Um, not as many as you would mm-hmm. think. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't remember off yeah. the top of my head exactly, but it was, you know, less than 20. Okay. Right, right. And when you think about it, like that doesn't sound like a lot, <laughs> but from the researcher standpoint, mm-hmm. it was a lot of planning. Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot. Because <laughs> I had to find... I didn't want them to be exposed to the same Confederate Mm -hmm. twice. So I had to find enough volunteers to never have the same person exposed to the same Confederate twice in the entire project Mm -hmm. across baseline intervention and maintenance. I had to, so I had to coordinate scheduling for like this 30 second interaction in the community Mm -hmm. 
I had to coordinate the Confederate. I had to coordinate myself. I had to coordinate the participant and their caregiver to transport them mm-hmm. there. I had to coordinate um, a second observer who acted as um, kind of a buffer for the community in case there was anybody nearby that was watching mm-hmm. or listening and uncomfortable. So then my a second observer would kind of go and reassure everyone that it was a study and kind of have some information to give mm-hmm. them and my contact information. And um, so like I had a lot of people that I had to schedule for this 30 second interaction. <laughs> so it was a lot of work on that side of things, but otherwise it's a very quick process, right? Um, if you were just doing it from an intervention standpoint, like clinically, you know, you, you could use other clients, caregivers as your mm-hmm. confederates. You can use staff members that don't work with your client as confederates and you can set it up pretty easily in the community to happen. And, and the instructional component, I mean, it sounds like a lot of instructions, mm-hmm. but it actually only took me 20 minutes to do the instructions and the video okay. models. Like it was a very short amount of time to give the basic information needed on how to be safe in a dangerous situation. And um, every client two to four weeks after we finished the study maintained all their responding at 100%. So to know that you have such a strong maintenance effect for a 20-minute instructional period, Mm -hmm. of course, like then there are all those in-situ feedbacks and other trials. But that's a reasonable thing to implement Mm -hmm. even, you know, um, in a clinic. That's a reasonable instructional program to implement. Yeah, I mean, that's that, not going to use up a ton yeah. of resources. I mean, yeah. that could be a standard program for everyone here. So we'll do the 20 minute program and then um, the, the in situ stuff is the. The second secret word is suboptimal. The in situ stuff is the key. And like, um, Trevor Maxfield and Raymond Miltenberger and some others are doing meta-analyses of all of the safety skills research publications. And um, they found that every, with all things, every individual learns a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. Behavioral skills training typically on its own does not work. You do need the in-situ feedback piece, but there are actually some clients who can just do the in-situ feedback piece and really don't need the BST piece. Mm. Um, some of them can just learn to discriminate the safe and dangerous situations through the in-situ feedback without the instructional component or the modeling mm-hmm. or even the role-playing with safe people. And other times, the BST and the in-situ training doesn't work without external reinforcement schedules. Mm-hmm. So the key with my study and a lot of the other studies is there was no external reinforcement. We didn't need to use... Um, edibles or activity time or any form of reinforcement schedule. It was just praise. Mm-hmm. And so Milton Berger and Maxfield and the others that research in that area f- have found that that's not always the case. Praise is not always enough mm-hmm. for some of the clients that they're teaching safety skills gotcha. to. Um, okay. A couple of questions. So I, th- I thought I knew BST um, <laughs> um, is is the NC you, so you're saying the NC do stuff is not part of BST? I thought that was sort of the like the final no. step. So if you're doing your BST, you're doing your instructions, your model, and your role play with your feedback. Mm-hmm. Now in my situation, the role play is with safe right. people. It's not in the community with Confederates, and it's not like a surprise probe. 
you know you're role playing, you know the expectations, you it's and so you could do it with a confederate, you could do the role play, but the participant knows what's happening. You're standing right there giving them mm-hmm. feedback. It's not the same whereas in C2 feedback and training is more probe like in that it's a surprise to the participant. Mm. They don't necessarily know they're being um going through a trial to learn until the person then steps in to give them the feedback right, if they're incorrect right. or correct. I see, I see. And so that's kind of the difference there. So great study. I mean, I, I love, I, I've, I've always been sort of enthralled by these, these whole, all this Milton Berger stuff. And I, I remember when I first, I think it was at ABBA and maybe it was like 2011 or something. And Milton Berger just had, did a whole symposium on kind of safety skills and, and the stuff he was doing was just mind blowing, um, uh, you know, and that you're kind of replicating. Um, but what, excuse me, what threw me off sort of at the end of it all was how do you replicate that? How, how, do, how do you get people to participate? And so what, what, the, what does, um, because I, have a, I think of a couple of things. So I guess a couple of questions. So what does consent look like as far as the participants in the study? And then two, what is there in there to sort of mitigate the fact that you're now, you've now exposed these individuals to, to 20 different um, people coming up to them and, <laughs> and, and, and asking them to do something sketchy, which probably doesn't happen to most folks. Yeah. So the, so my advisors, Dr. Carden and Dr. Ackland Brandt were my um, committee for this project and they played big roles in supporting mm. me through it. They were very worried that my study was not going to get through the review mm-hmm. board, the IRB, because, you know, when you're reading about it, you're like, okay, strangers are going to approach mm-hmm. these people and ask them to do, like, I had things like take your shirt mm-hmm. off or give me a yep. hug. I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to punch you. Like some pretty staggering <laughs> mm-hmm. things. And I was just really detailed about the consent, the assent, the, um, the, ways to mitigate coercion so that I wasn't coercing anyone to participate, mm-hmm. parent involvement. And then of course, what to do if we had participants that had like a representation mm-hmm. agreement where their parents or caregivers actually make the yay or nay. And how do we take into consideration the participants assent in those mm-hmm. situations? And I really wanted it to be open to people who used AAC devices, who were nonverbal who maybe had intellectual disabilities um, or other comorbid diagnoses. So it was open to anybody with developmental or intellectual disabilities. And so I had to make my consent form at a certain reading level so that it was easy to understand. I, I had to schedule as many appointments as necessary to review the study with participants so that they knew what they were getting into and that we were very confident that their consent or assent was mm-hmm. genuine. And so that's what we did. And we just, told, there was no deception. It was very clear from the onset, I will have people approaching you. They're going to be my mm-hmm. friends or your parents or caregivers' mm-hmm. friends. You will not know them, but we know that they're safe. And they will approach you sometimes you might not know when, but in the community. Mm-hmm. And they're going to ask you something like this. And we're going to work through some training. Anyway, it was just, it was very clearly laid out in written format and in interview format. And parents helped to communicate some of the pieces so that it was at their level. 
and yeah. So they was... so they knew when they, they not when they knew that the in situ piece was happening, What's but they didn't know when they they knew that there there would be random people, you know, over the next couple of months approaching them yes. and, and saying different statements to them, and so. And one of the limitations of the study was that they also knew I would be watching to make sure they were mm. safe. And so some of them would look for me. <laughs> and so that's actually one of the limitations of the study. Is I, I, I might call it faulty stimulus sure. control. I mean, it's not faulty and it is faulty yeah. to some extent because sometimes the cue that this was a dangerous situation might have actually been my mm. presence, which sometimes like I did my best to kind of disguise. Like sometimes I'd hide yeah. behind cars or stay in my car and try to record from afar. But I have a bright blue iPad. It's it's awfully challenging to hide <laughs> with a bright blue iPad and within a distance that the iPad could record what was happening. So, you know, they knew it was safe. They knew their parents were going to be nearby. They knew I was going to be nearby. They knew that the Confederates were known yeah. to us and that they were safe people. And we also let them know that they could, same as any study, you can choose to stop at any time if you're uncomfortable you can drop out at any time we also did um a survey ahead of time to ensure that they'd never had a dangerous situation or trauma that in was their my life next question. related to yeah. something like yeah. this yeah so that was it i mean it was self-report mm -hmm. but or it was reported by parents who may or may not have known everything that had always mm -hmm. happened to their child but everybody that consented was very eager they felt like they, we did a social validity survey and they all felt that it was a skill that they had cool. wanted, that they felt was important for them yeah. to learn. Um, so it was, it was, there was actually a really positive social validity result from both the caregivers and, and the participants oh, that's themselves. Yeah. No, uh, this yeah. is, I mean, this is great work. I'm, I'm so glad it was done, you know, uh, you know, that you did it. I mean, I, I saw you present your poster at the local conference and I was like, this is the highlight for me. This 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 and that one present <laughs> presentation on sort of gender pronouns; those were the two that just kind of kind of got me. But that this this was by far the the, the coolest thing I'd seen because I, I just I'd always sort of thought, you know, this this work by Milton Berger is great, but no one else is ever going to do it. Um, you know, he he's the only one that's probably got the guts to do it. Well, and I think at this point, like there are. I, I couldn't tell you the exact number of studies that were in the meta-analysis yeah. on this that Maxfield is doing, but there's a lot. And at this point, we can be pretty confident in saying BST with IST and sometimes with external reinforcement schedules is an effective way to teach safety skills, whether that be um, what to do when you come across a gun. Mm -hmm, right what to do in an abduction situation that's not a family member, yeah. <laughs> um, what to do in, and I mean like the sexual abuse and physical abuse definitely needs to be replicated. Mm. But again, I'm pretty confident that BST and IST after this much research, not just in safety skills, but across many other learning opportunities mm. is an effective intervention. I think you're going to find that that's an effective intervention, no matter how many replications sure. you do with different populations. But um, you know, but can we extend it? Like, there's lots of room for extension into self-advocacy in general mm -hmm. um, and not just populations with disabilities, but neurotypical populations. Like, what do you do when you're being bullied? Mm -hmm. What do you do as a, a teenage woman who's being 
pressured to engage in sexual activities that you don't want to mm-hmm. engage in or anybody being pressured into those activities or drug use or alcohol use at an early age. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of room cyberbullying. Totally, yeah. And just assertiveness in general as a vocational skill. Like, there's room. I, I even think Milton Berger's done some stuff in uh, sports safety and how to tackle safely in football or protect yourself safely in gymnastics. Like, the safety skills is such a general mm-hmm. term. You could really apply that in a lot of different ways. And the behavioral skills training and the practice in real life with feedback is, is invaluable. Have, uh, any, any idea? I mean, obviously you, you've looked at the research have, have, or, or I don't even know if this would be in the research, but have, have there been any examples of, of say a, a person, you know, that went through any of these studies then come in contact with a, a real situation? I have not seen that reported anywhere that doesn't mean that it hasn't been yeah. but that would, I did that would be amazing it. to to hear that you know my son almost got abducted but he ran and he said no and he came and told me right away like that would be magic yes well and i think that's the bonus about using confederates is that you're setting up for generalization to those yeah. settings as best as you possibly can whereas if you're using a therapist that the client sees several times a week or knows really well they're not necessarily going to generalize that skill when a new stimulus is presented like a stranger right right? it might not generalize to that situation or when a novel statement is is given so if you've only trained someone to respond to an abduction lure that's hey i've got some candy come check it out but you've never examined hey i've got an ipad or just just a straight up come with me or a question there's a lot of room for it to still go wrong if you're not taking into consideration all those things yeah absolutely and then just the, sort of one last kind of question on, on, on kind of this area is how, how would another BCBA implement this program and and get sort of that consent piece in terms of the Confederate part? Because it sounds like the in, in C2 piece is the most is probably the most important part. And so and so how do you make that happen? Are there examples of that happening sort of, you know, outside of a research setting? You know what I mean? Not that I know of this. Again, not to say that mm-hmm. it's not happening. I'm sure. Raymond Miltonberger and his students have implemented it clinically. I've often thought that it would be a really cool thing to do in a community where you just reach out to, and again, to all parents with all types of children and just say, hey, I'm putting on this workshop. If you're interested, this is how many people we need. And instead, rotating those parents as the Confederates for the other kids. Because in theory, those kids and the parents would not know each other. They'd only know their own parents. And so it'd be kind of like a community Mm -hmm. project where everybody's main goal is to teach all of the kids to respond appropriately to these situations. And so all of the parents volunteer their time to act as confederates. And, you know, you get it done in a weekend almost. You kind of like rapid toilet training. You just, we're just going to drill this into some kids for the weekend. and, And then you... You know, you take criminal record checks and you course, ensure yeah, yeah. that everybody's relatively oh, that'd safe. That'd be a great model. That's a great idea. I really like that idea. That's, yeah, that's one idea I've had. But clinically, I think if you have a center, it's a lot easier to do, um, to gain consent and you have all the forms and things like that. And also you have access to your staff that aren't necessarily working with every single client that comes through your center, Right. Or the staff have family members, the staff have partners, the staff have kids 
or teenagers who we all are likely to trust. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't Mm -hmm. say that we should trust them every time, but you know, it's, you have kind of a network of trusted people that you can pull from. And of course you can still ensure that you're doing background checks and criminal record checks and making sure that these people are really as safe as we would hope. But as long as a BCBA or a senior behavior interventionist or a BCABA is monitoring these things like I did, you kind of stand back and you watch and you know when these times are being scheduled and you know where they're being scheduled. I think it's it's totally doable. It's it's really not a rocket science mm-hmm. intervention. You know, the the logistics sometimes of setting up those meeting places can be hard, but the intervention itself is totally doable and relatively easy to implement. Cool. Yeah. No, I definitely like that community sort of get together idea, the sort of the the safe the, mm-hmm. the safety yeah, block I was party. Just thinking, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, a parent swap and shop. You just say, hey, I'm a researcher. This is sort of what I teach. You know, I'm looking to put on a workshop. It'll cost this much for a two-day sort of deal, and we're going to do it in this part of the community. If you're interested, there's an information session this evening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I don't know. It's bounced around my head. Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. Yeah, definitely. uh, I kind of want to look into more maybe connect with Milton Berger and just see what they've done clinically. Cause I just see this, the, the, these skills being, you know, such basic important skills, just as basic as, as you know, you as toilet training, you know? Yeah. And the one limitation in this research is that it hasn't gone large scale. It is, that was sort of where my next step in research was going to be for dissertation before COVID happened was like, can I implement something like this in the right. schools? And, you know, feasibility wise, it's, it's a lot harder. Because how do you have Confederates approach students on school grounds to so many Mm -hmm. students? You know, you've got 30 kids in a class. You've got however many classes. Are we teaching all of them? Are we rotating classrooms? Whereas right now, the primary go-to for teaching these skills is a Mm lecture-based assembly where you can nail out all 500 students in, you know, a half a day Mm -hmm. assembly. It's way more cost-effective, but it's not an effective intervention at all. There's a lot of research showing that those interventions, you know, you might see a knowledge increase, but you don't see the behavior right, change. Right. So the whoever wants to take that on and looking at ways to autom- automatize or, well, I don't know that, that <laughs> means, but <laughs> making it more seamless and making it feasible to implement in a school setting would be Oh, that would amazing. be huge, yeah. But COVID hit, and so you kind of had to steer things in a different direction. And so you're 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 now in sort of you've done that piece and, and put it. Are, are you planning to publish it or the the safety study? Yeah, we're working on it. So we'll, we'll yep. watch for that for sure because that'll be cool. Um, but meanwhile, you you had to kind of sort of switch gears. And again, you said part of the reason you were kind of at the Chicago School was to sort of. Uh, venture into sort of some other realms beyond uh, beyond autism. Uh, what are you looking at? The third secret word is report. So I have been exposed to so many amazing things. Like you go, I, going through a doctorate program is like going through a crazy transformation of understanding how much you just right. don't know. <laughs> Um, but I would highly recommend it to anybody with the means to do it. It has been 
just the coolest journey. Um, I hit dissertation and I hit the same problem that I hit with my thesis of like, oh no, I have to pick a topic and I just love all these things. I love so much of, you know, you learn about discounting and you learn about the matching law and you learn about so many experimental studies, like the basic stuff and translational things and social justice is a big topic mm-hmm. right now and and uh, relational frame theory and and you know you're just you're just exposed to so much more and i I wouldn't say that the Chicago school went super outside of the autism and intellectual disability mm-hmm. realm, but you have the freedom to kind of make assignments what you want. And so if you want to take a more basic route, you can. And if you want to take a more applied route, you totally can. There's, It's not really limiting that way. Um, I even have a colleague who's more into OBM. And so he's gone a really OBM route. Um, you got the precision teachers in there that are going that route. And so in the actual dissertation process, there's some flexibility. The coursework is still maybe pretty heavily autism mm. related. But that's that's what a lot of our research is in, right? And so... That's what we're exposed to. So I didn't know. I had this plan. Again, things roll out in front of me. I was going to do the safety skills in the school. And then COVID hit and I'm not allowed Mm -hmm. in the schools. (laughs) And it also would have been really costly. So I had tried to get a couple grants. And obviously, a lot of the grant money is being redirected to things related to health Mm. sciences right now. And so we we didn't manage to get any grants. Um, So I had to rethink everything. But what I had been thinking for the safety skills in schools was looking at teaching safety skills through a game, like a video game and Mm. gamifying that. And then when I started talking to some of my professors about gamification and how I kind of wanted to get a skill set in experimental behavior analysis, one of them brought to my attention some research on using video games to test basic principles of behavior like the matching law, like um, social discounting or discounting in general and all sorts of things like that. And she actually had done some research replicating some of Thomas Zental's studies on suboptimal choice making. And he used a video game in a, with a whole, I can't remember, everybody. it was like Mole and Colleagues 2012. And they designed like a space video game to study suboptimal choice making as closely as possible to the way pigeons are studied with suboptimal choice making. So there's a concurrent chain schedule. The pigeon makes a choice. One of the choices leads to a suboptimal choice, another like set of choices, and the other leads to a more optimal set of choices. And it's crazy how often the pigeons pick mm-hmm. the suboptimal choice, which is more like a gambling situation. So you you get directed to this other choice where you could get this jackpot, like a really low probability of getting this right, like, ton right. of food. Or you have a higher probability right. of getting nothing. <laughs> and they pick that quite frequently, and as do humans when you're put in a situation like gambling or even social media. Like I could go do my homework or I could sit on Facebook. And sitting on Facebook, there's a chance that I'll see something yep. interesting, but not get a lot out of it overall. Oh, that's so interesting. Like, so there's all these things. And so she was kind of like, well, what about this direction? I was like, okay, well, let me think about that. And so then over COVID, like the the beginning of it, I was like, okay, I'm going to see if I can even make a video game because if I can't make a video game, <laughs> this doesn't really work. 
So I kind of taught myself a basic coding language and started creating a video game. And I showed her and she was like, this is so cool. Yes. And so now that's kind of the route I'm going. And I haven't really picked a research Mm. question yet or figured out exactly which direction I'm going to go because I still have a ton of lit review to see what's needed, like where the gaps are in this research. But you can start taking into consideration things like the prisoner's dilemma and how does having a group of people affect your decision making mm-hmm. and what's optimal for the group might not be optimal for you and what's suboptimal for you might not be suboptimal for the group and what if cheating gets you more and what if cooperating gets you more and i don't know there's just some really cool manipulations that i think totally. could be made i just have to figure out which ones need to be studied <laughs> yeah no exactly this sounds a lot like uh uh that game show, Let's Make a Deal. I haven't watched it, but I'm sure it probably... So let, let, Let's Make a Deal is a game show that's been on for, I think, at least since the 70s, maybe earlier. And uh, I think the guy that hosted it, I think it was a guy named Monty Hall. And uh, and then now I think it's um, it's a fellow from, uh, I can't remember his name, from Whose Line, whose line Is It oh, Anyway? Colin? But no, uh, no, uh, no, no, the thir- the other, the, no, there's the other one. <laughs> Um, um Wayne. Uh what's his name? Wayne, thank you. Wayne Brady, yes. Um and I have watched that, yes. And so all, all the people in the audience are dressed up in costumes. And essentially the show is, you know, kind of, you know, like Price is Right or something, where you can win these little prizes for answering questions in the audience. But then sort of at the end of it, you know, and I can't remember sort of how the process works, but at the end of it, the contestants now have a choice of you can keep, you know, your bedroom set and your or your your new stereo, or you can choose behind door number one, two, or three. And behind door number three is like, you know, everything you've ever wanted in life. And but door number two is like a giraffe, and door number one is like a you know, a donkey or something, you know. And so many people don't keep the stuff and instead go for that. Is that essentially a suboptimal choice making? situation yeah yeah that's amazing it's just like gambling in general right like if i go to a casino or even a gas station and there's lottery tickets available and i have ten dollars in my pocket yeah i can choose to not gamble and i am guaranteed to keep that ten dollars right it's a continuous schedule of reinforcement that ten dollars stays there yeah or i could spend that ten dollars and again have that low probability jackpot or the high probability nothing. Mm-hmm. And you're most likely going to get nothing. And so it's suboptimal over time to always pick the high-low probability over the continuous schedule of reinforcement. Yeah, yeah. And so I could definitely see the, you know, the the basic experimental sort of value to this. Um, how, could, how could some of this, this work around suboptimal choice making be applied? Well, I think primarily to situations of addiction. Mm, yeah. Right? And and self-control training. Um, you think about the marshmallow test. Right. Yes. You know, if you learn that one of your, if we want to stay in the autism intellectual disability realm, if you learn that one of your clients is unable to delay gratification, that they make very impulsive choices or suboptimal choices. Right. And you know that, then you can design a program to systematically desensitize or systematically increase their ability to delay gratification in certain situations. Oh, yeah. Very cool. Right? So, you know, if you have a long-term goal, like running a five-kilometer run, or your client has a goal of doing that, but they're unable to motivate themselves to get up and do that every day, you can break the goal down into smaller pieces and systematically Mm. shape that up. Just 
all based on these types of things and explaining to them, teaching them about suboptimal choice making. I've often wondered if just teaching people about how we make choices mm-hmm. would have an effect on their choice making behavior. True enough. You know, if somebody who smoked understood the mechanisms at play when they decide to smoke versus not smoke, taking out the physiological symptoms, yeah. obviously, would that make quitting easier mm-hmm. or would it have no effect or would it have an immediacy effect but gradually fade off as that information faded from you know being recent or uh, you know yeah we well, can almost see like maybe like a like an action component or something in, in terms of yep. like diffusion and and kind of you know i am making a suboptimal choice right now you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, and kind of understanding that and then uh and and having just having that awareness might make it more likely that you leave the store with 10 bucks still in your pocket yeah if you're more mindful and, and understand the things the the mechanisms that play a role in how we make those decisions i think you're better prepared to make or to not make i mean i like gambling yeah i don't gamble every day sure I don't gamble all my money away, but I love going to Vegas and having a budget and, you know, working through that. It's very fun. Absolutely. They're on a schedule of reinforcement that are designed to be very enticing and engaging. Yeah. But I understand the mechanisms at play. And so I'm better able to control myself when I get there. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And then they also have that sort of schedule of external reinforcement where you can just go to the penny machine and sit there for, you know, 60 hours. Yes. And constant drinks will flow, you know, <laughs> to, to, to keep you at that table or, or, <laughs> or, or they'll pump the casino full of, you know, really fresh, you know, oxygen at a, you know, at a higher <laughs> concentration to kind of keep you there. So there. I think the more, you know, the more prepared you are to make an informed decision. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's even in the casinos, it's even like the carpeting is sort of designed so you don't look down because it's too distracting and forces you to look at the machines and that sort of thing. <laughs> I'd read that somewhere as behavior well. Behavior analysts are everywhere, oh even if they don't know they're behavior analysts. They are. And so you had mentioned kind of, I think in, when we were emailing back and forth, um, that and maybe, and maybe you've already kind of said it in terms of the gamification, about how game theory applies. I don't know much about game theory. Can, can you tell me what game theory is? I would love to say I know lots about game theory, but I don't yet. Ah, Um, But the prisoner's dilemma is one of the games in game theory. So, you know, you have two people and there's a quadrant of four choices Mm. and one choice benefits one person and doesn't benefit the other. One choice benefits both. One ruins both and one benefits the other person while not the first person. And so looking at how people make decisions when in those situations mm-hmm. is is game theory and it's based in political science. They often look at those things when looking at inner um, different political relations and how people make choices around those things. There are other games. Um, I can't remember them off the top of my head, but if you, you know, even just Wikipedia games and game theory, mm-hmm. I mean, pris- the prisoner's dilemma is the most well-known yep. no, that makes game, sense. but yep. there are many others. And so those all involve choice making mm. And you can easily identify the suboptimal and optimal choices for in that situation in particular because there's an optimal choice for an individual and there's an optimal choice for the group. There's a suboptimal choice for an individual and a suboptimal choice for the group. And so what are the factors that, like, what manipulations can we make to actually almost control the choices made? Right. Cool. Or what are the factors that affect 
choice making in those situations. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely, you're definitely venturing in other lands there, which is great. And then, uh, and so when, when you graduate, is this a, is this a doctorate in, in behavior analysis or, or, or do you become a psychologist? I mean, they call it the school of professional psychology. What's sort of the end result? It's just a- this program is a doctorate in applied behavior analysis. Um, so it is more applied focus. Um, I just feel very thankful that I've been exposed to some of the teachers who have more of an experimental background mm-hmm. to be able to branch this way mm-hmm. or a translational background even. But at the end of it, it you if you've done a single subject research design for your dissertation, then you qualify for the BCBAD designation and get to be called doctor. There you Dr. go. Watson. There you go. Well, that's what you had to do anyway, sort of from birth. Thanks to, Sher- yeah, thanks, right? thanks to good old Sherlock, right? <laughs> so yeah, it makes sense. Makes sense. Um, okay, right on. That's super cool. Well, looking forward to sort of seeing kind of how that work unfolds. And I know a lot of people do go a clinical psychology doctorate route. Right. I don't think there's a specific... I. I would have to, you know, don't quote me on this, but check the BACB website. But I'm pretty confident as long as you've done your doctorate and it's, you did a dissertation that was a single subject research design related to behavior analysis in some way, you can apply for your BCBAD. There are just some programs that have a verified course sequence that makes it more streamlined. Gotcha. So that single subject piece is is the key. Um, That's interesting. I didn't know that. And I mean, you can embed a single subject within a group design if you wanted to do a group Mm -hmm. design you know you would just collect the single subject data Mm -hmm. of one or two or well three three to five people why do you think that is that they require that single subject piece that's what we publish and that's what we use that's what skinner i mean the cumulative record and Mm. and you know what methodologically there's there's pros and cons to both but single subject designs very clearly show functional relations group designs are all based on probabilities there is always a small probability of error and guesswork. Ideally, we merge them. We do both. <laughs> well, this is, yeah, I guess this is sort of what I was wondering. And so, or, or you start with a bunch of single subjects, sort of like Raymond Miltenberger's done. And then you, the next step is to apply it to a group design to see if we see similar results. Right, on a right, right. Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, that makes sense. I liked, I liked, I liked, you know, the, the you know, in your spare time, you're in your bio, you're immersing yourself in behavior analysis culture. I know a lot of people in their spare time kind of like to stay away from <laughs> their work, you know. And- I'm not going to lie. I'm slowly, <laughs> <laughs> as the culture seems to be evolving during this time, yeah. I am slowly fading out a little yeah. bit more. And as my involvement in the podcast has slowed down as well, yeah. it's been a little bit harder to follow. But I, I like keeping up with what's happening in our field in, in, in different countries and, and in different areas. And I love following the law enforcement group, the, the sexual health group, the precision teaching group. Like, I just, I just love our science. I just think there's so many people doing so many cool things right now. Well, maybe we'll just touch on that since we are on a podcast and you were on a podcast. Um, and uh, for those listening to this podcast, they'll notice that uh, Danielle will probably have uh, the best sound quality of all my guests um, <laughs> <laughs> because because she was she was a podcast host herself and 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 not just on you know some podcast that went for five episodes in 2012. And this is a, a current. Um, very well known in our field uh, podcast uh, called uh, the controversial exchange, um, which I, I understand is recently 
took a break, but maybe coming back. How, how, how did you end up being a co-host on the controversial exchange, which is involves, you know, a couple American folk uh, that are, are, you know, I, I feel even more distant living on, on, on an Island, but um, I just, I just feel like a lot of these sorts of uh, quote unquote kind of celebrities in our culture are so distant from me. And so how, do, how does um, someone, someone else who lives on an Island in BC and uh, end up on this podcast? Yeah. So Ryan started the daily BA, which I just think was so amazing and so new to our field and so needed. And I kind of obsessed over it. And then he started putting on conferences and I was like, I'm going to go to one of these conferences and I'm going to meet this guy. I'm going to meet him and I'm going to tell him I want to be involved. <laughs> and anybody who knows me knows that I might talk the talk when I'm by myself, <laughs> but I am a very shy, yeah. very introverted, uh, not super confident all the time in my abilities. I think that's the other part of a doc program, like imposter syndrome becomes so big. Mm -hmm. And so I went to this conference in Seattle, ChatCon, if uh, it ever gets put on again. It's a really cool, it's called the, let me see if I can get the acronym ah. right, the Convergence of Human Training, Animal Training, and Technology. Mm. And it's very cool because you have such a diverse audience. You have BCBAs, you have animal trainers, you have, like, not just dog trainers. Like, you've got dog trainers, you've got zookeepers, you've got horse trainers, mm -hmm. you've got clicker training tag teach people you i mean carl binder was there wow. talking about his his six model his six boxes and joe lang was there talking about ai and then you had a couple authors from books talking about their books um the one about shamu i'll, I'll have to send you the link mm -hmm. i can't remember the title right now it was a very you got tag teachers like Teresa mckeon i yep. think is her name yep. um talking about how how to use tag teach to teach gymnasts and, and sports and how she taught surgeons to do surgery with tag teach. And it was a very cool conference. And I actually think Ryan's made some of the videos available for pay. Um, if you look into that, it totally worth it. There were some amazing speakers. And, 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 and he put this conference on. Yeah. He put it on with tag teach. That's amazing. Um, yeah. They, they co-hosted it together. And so I cornered him. <laughs> I found him. And I made sure that I had very bright blue hair that day. <laughs> and I looked, you know, pretty professional, yeah. uh, like business casual. Yeah. And I just, he's so tall in real life, by the way. Yes. He, his videos make him look just average height, but I felt so intimidated because he's so tall. And I was like, oh, I, I'm Danielle and I live here and it's very rural and I follow all your videos and I really want to be involved in something. Yeah. And his message was kind of like, well, I mean, he didn't know who I was. Mm. I looked 12. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> I'm from Canada. I, <laughs> he doesn't know who I am. And so his message at the time was kind of like, well, you know, you got to be really dedicated. Like, I need people who are really go, go, go getters. Um, if you're interested, go talk to my colleague over here. And so he directed me to some people and I built some friendships mm. there. But nothing really came of it because he was super busy. It had only been like the first year that he'd had the Daily BA going mm -hmm. or maybe the second year. And how do you keep reaching out? Like You don't want to pester someone. Anyways, then I started the doc program and I met some amazing people in it. And one of them happened to be Dimitri Makritis. And he is in my cohort. Mm -hmm. We have been in the same classes from day one, mm. um, on the same trajectory, same professors, um, in a study group together with some other colleagues. And 
you know, we we talk frequently about the program and just life. And he goes, you know, I really, I really want to start a podcast. I'm like, well, that's cool. And then all of a sudden, he sends me a message and he goes, guess what? Me and Ryan O'Donnell are starting a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, right, like the Ryan, the, the the Daily BA Ryan. He's like, yeah, you know him. Like, well, well not really. I met him once. <laughs> And um, so they started the podcast and I wasn't involved, but Dimitri and I were close enough that we'd talk often enough and I'd be giving them ideas and they'd let me hear the episodes ahead of time and give them feedback. And mm. and then they realized how detail-oriented I was and they were like, can you do the show notes? And I'm like, yeah, that, that sounds like a good idea. I'll do that. I'd love to be involved. I told Ryan I wanted to be involved mm-hmm. in something. This is perfect. There you go. I don't have to be front and center. No one has to know who I am. I'll just do these show notes on the side. The perfect and- introvert activity. Yeah. It'll be great. And that happened for a few episodes. I did the show notes. And and then Ryan and Demetra were like, we want you to host with us. We think you bring a really nice balance to the conversation. Because I always was talking to them about the episode after the fact. Mm-hmm. And they were like, we want, yeah, we need some more diversity on these shows. And you're young. And, you know, you, you have a different perspective. And we really want you. And I was like, I don't think I that i don't <laughs> once on the internet always on the internet I, don't think I, I just i'm very shy and i don't i don't want to do that and uh you know gradually it just ended up that i was invited to these zoom meetings yep. and yep. <laughs> started doing it and, and it was so much fun um to meet some of the cool people that we met like david cox and and um jordan belial and and I mean, Jordan's amazing. Oh, my gosh. On the episode, we joked that Dimitri had a man crush. I was crushing hard. (laughs) Um, You know, he's, they're just some super cool people in the field. And it was, I felt very privileged and grateful to have been invited to have gotten the opportunity to participate on the show and to meet these people and have these conversations. And uh, again, it's just like the theme of my life. Sometimes these things just roll out in front of me and I get to take advantage of them. So awesome. uh, yeah, I just feel very, very thankful to be in that position. Well, it certainly shows the power of networking because, I mean, you, you, you went up to Ryan at a conference and nothing came of it. But I'm sure I'm sure the uh, that the, the, the blue hair was uh, was was a, you know, some stimulus control for him. And, and he, he remembered that and remembered you. And uh, oh, he and, definitely uh, remembered me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh and and that sort of kind of kind of brought brought it all together. Oh yeah, her. She was super keen. Yeah, yeah let's totally get her. Yeah, on. and it was fun to be the Canadian, like to pull up the Canadian perspective and remind people that like there's totally. different funding models out there, and you know yep. there's different approaches in different areas. And yeah, I, it was it was fun, and I look forward to when we're able to bring it back with a bit of a different different flair. So that that is that is the plan. We can't expect something someday. I, maybe with a maybe with a different name, maybe with a different different focus. But uh, we might see the three of you together again. The goal is that something eventually will come back with the three of us. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. No promises, awesome. but no, no. It's 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 a goal. It's a goal. I'm sure we'll see the three of you do something somewhere, um, in in some form because uh, you, they were right. You do provide that balance, and, and it's. It's neat to have all three on there for sure. Oh, and the, and like it was just so nice to not just with the podcast, but with the doctorate program to find like, quote unquote, your people, mm-hmm. you know, uh, living in these rural areas. And I'm sure you can attest to this. Like 
not everybody wants to get nerdy about behavior analysis. Nope. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when you're in a dog program, that's almost all you can talk about. And so it was nice to find these outlets. Absolutely. I can totally relate. I mean, that's why I got part of the reason I got into the podcast in the first place was, I mean, I was rural before COVID. And when COVID's over, I will remain rural and I will remain on Zoom. Um, <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, you know, any opportunity to kind of connect with folks um, is awesome. And so that's, that's a big part of the reason why I like doing this podcast is so I can just chat with folks. Uh, it'd be nice if other people listen, but I get to listen, which is, I think, and then learn. And, and it'll be so cool to see the talent in our own backyards and what people are doing. A hundred percent. You know, yeah. and to anybody that is listening that has questions about PhD programs or just the whole process of yeah. going from bachelor's to master's or master's to doctorate or whatever, um, I'm totally open to chatting with anybody that's looking for advice or has questions about my experience there. Great. Well, I'm going to attempt to uh, write show notes that, uh, that hopefully meet some standard and, uh, and we'll include all the great resources that you share with us today. And of course, your contact information, folks want to reach out to you. And that's super awesome. Yeah, so much, so many different areas. This was a, a cool conversation, and I'm definitely keen to kind of maybe chat with you again when uh, when you're you're done your PhD and you're kind of uh, I can only I, I can only imagine I can't even imagine where you might be when this is all over because you've been exposed to so many things, you've had so many opportunities, you've done so many really really neat things, and you're just kind of willing to venture into any area. And I think uh, we're going to be pretty lucky to to kind of have you with us. I hope you don't leave us and become an American citizen like so no. many um, uh, amazing people tend to do. Um, no, uh, I'm pretty confident I'm staying. I'm staying here. Yeah, it's um, awesome. Yeah. Especially like now, now people do understand the, the how much can be done from home or rurally, which is lovely. 100%. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm very, my doors are always open. I have no idea where I will be. That's so cool. At the end of all of this or whatnot, I even... I mean, if anybody knows any zookeepers, I would love to do something in a zoo. Mm, right on. Just saying, putting it out there to the world. <laughs> right on. Well, I have no direction. <laughs> I'm looking to learn a little bit of everything about our field. So well, somebody always has something to teach. The, the, the vegan in me might steer you towards uh, an animal sanctuary. There's a couple of really good ones on the island. Well, there's so many cool. That was one of the very cool things about ChatCon was that we actually, it was hosted at uh, the zoo in Seattle. Mm. And seeing how the zookeepers use behavior analysis to do medical, like to teach a giraffe to do occupational therapy so that um, its neck, it had some sort of arthritis in its mm. neck. And so they used behavior analysis and tag teach to train it to do these neck exercises to extend and support its health. And I mean, that's just so cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, sanctuary or rescue or anything you know, as long as I'm helping somebody, somewhere, something. 100%. 100%. Right on. Well, Danielle, thanks again for being on. Super fun to talk with you on a windy Sunday morning and <laughs> on the West Coast. And uh, yeah, uh, hopefully we do it again. Yeah, thanks for having me. I think we will definitely do it again. Super I'm expected awesome. to be done December 2021. Hooray! <laughs> cool. Great. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.